if we haven't met yet, my name is Doug Hankins. I'm the young adult pastor here, and we are so excited you've chosen to gather with us on this, the last table of 2018. Oh, that's okay. You can all right there. All right. Next week, we will have the table. Isaac will say more in a little bit. We'll have a Christmas celebration. It's going to be really great. Isaac's going to have great details on that. But this is the last normal table of 2018. We get to start back again in January, and we've got a great 2019 ready for you guys. But where we've been this fall semester, if you've been with us, is we've been reading and studying through the whole book of Ephesians. And the way we've broken apart Ephesians is really summarized it into kind of two main ideas, the first three chapters and then the second three chapters. And it's this, saved by grace to walk this way. Saved by grace, the theological, the ethical. Uh, God has saved us, brought us into this relationship with himself, and that means something. Therefore, we walk in these ways Uh, the ways that are in keeping in balance with the calling which we've been given of being saved by grace. And so for the the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what it means to be uh, saved by grace and walking that out in our daily lives. Um, Very practically, we looked at some character things we should be putting on. And then last couple of weeks, we talked about sex and sexual uh, activity and sexuality and what that means and what it looks like to be renewed by Jesus and our sexuality. Last week, David Branch just did a tremendously helpful job t- talking to us about alcohol and alcohol consumption. You know, two topics that young adults have like no idea about, right? Like sex and alcohol. You guys are like, sex? What? It, I've never thought about this or heard of this word. Do you mean six, like the number? I, this, this is really confusing, right? So sex, alcohol, and this week we're going to look at the last kind of component of this. It's that which Summer just read. Paul's going to be dealing with renewal in our relationships. There's a whole lot of relationships that we got to get through to talk about today, but I think if you'll stay with us, there's a a lot of wisdom to be gained from these verses that some are read. But to set all of this up, just to kind of give you um, context for where we're going to go today, just to help us have a primer on where we've been, I I want to just do a little bit of a a thought experiment with y'all, if y'all are okay with this. Okay, so I just want you to make sure you're comfortable and you're cool, just kind of look at the person next to you and just kind of look at them and give them one of these where you're like, we're doing this. Okay, just just kind of nod to the person next to you, just be cool people, we're going to be fine. We're going to do a thought experiment, and here's what it is. Uh, Yeah, no judgment. Thank you, Tristan. No judgment. Um, I I want us to consider um, what it it is like for Jesus from his perspective. Or I want us to consider broadly what it's like for the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, What they must see on a regular basis. Okay, Because what Paul tells us is the goal of the spiritual life, of the Christian life, is to learn to think and to feel like Jesus thinks and feels. Okay? In fact, our definition of renewal, which we'll get to in a little bit, basically says some more or less that idea. And so I want us to just consider what it's like for the Godhead to see the universe. Just when, when God, now God doesn't wake up, but in, in metaphorically speaking, when God kind of wakes up in the morning and his feet hit the floor and he looks out, I want us to consider what he sees. And so I've provided these pictures here. The first one is this. first one's a really interesting picture that NASA has just constructed. We have that one, Julia. Uh, the pictures up there? Yeah, okay. Well, this is actually one of the, the columns that uh, the Hubble telescope uh, uh, took a few years back, and this is like one of my favorite pictures of space. This is like just so many light years away from where we are now, but that's space right now. And when God looks out, that's what he sees. He sees stuff like this. Um, and inside, just like, you know, the Milky Way is at the top of one of those columns, and it would be, in, in this rendering, it would be like a dot, like a pixel on there. 
And that's the Milky Way. That's the galaxy where we live. And Earth is a subset of that pixel just at the top of one of those columns. Like, that's incredible. Uh, the next picture Julia is going to show you is a composite of what a number of uh, robots and computers have put together, theorizing probably what the whole of the universe looks like if you put everything together, that it actually functions in kind of a spiral shape. And so when you travel across the universe, you actually travel into some extent kind of a spiral thing. And so this is a good rendering of maybe what God sees when he wakes up in the morning. Not a bad view, right? Now here are the two questions I want us to consider in our thought experiment. What do you think, go ahead and leave that up there. What do you think God thinks when he sees this? You don't have to answer just in your own mind space. Think about this. What do you think God thinks when he sees this? And question number two is, what do you think God feels when he sees this? Like what feelings are associated? What do you think it must be like for God to look on this? And it's wonder, right? It's amazing. It's, you, these are probably a lot of positive, I mean, it's complicated, it's beautiful, it's massive. This is just, I mean, I just, you know, I just think it must be like a Foo Fighters song, right? Like in my own mind, it's just like, uh, Foo Fighters have this song called uh, Everlong, right? In the, the beginning of it, it's like, dun, dun, da, 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 dun, 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 And it's just like, like it's driving and it's anthem. And when I look at this stuff, I'm just like, yeah, Foo Fighters, right? Um, that's just me. Uh, I don't know what it what feels like for you, but the, really the purpose of this is to try to just imagine what God thinks and feels when he looks at the universe at a massive scale. Now, we don't have to guess too much what he thinks about this because in the Psalms, in fact, Julia's going to throw that on the screen here, the Psalms uh, says this about all that. Psalm 147 verse 4 says, um, He, God, determines the number of stars And he gives to all of them their names. He determines the number of stars and he gives them names. So here's what's really interesting about that, if that psalm is correct. God not only like put them out there and numbered them, which is a very thoughtful academic exercise. He's like, okay, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 34, and 15. I'm awesome. 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Right? He not only did all that, but he did something very personal, something motivated by his own feelings. He gave name to all the stars. He's like, yeah, that one is the sun. And it's hot. It's just going to be hot right there, right? We're going to put it in the middle of the Milky Way, and it's going to be there. Um, God not only numbered all the stars, he names them. He thinks very greatly about this, and he feels very greatly about the universe. Now, at, at this level here, we just go, okay, uh, this is very theoretical, Doug, and you know, maybe just a little bit nerdy. So let me just dial it in a little bit more, and I want us to consider this in our own thought experiment. What do you think God thinks and feels when he looks at you and me. If the God who created the universe wakes up each day and looks at this and goes, I gave every one of those stars a name. I not only created, I gave it a name. Now what about when he dials it in and he looks at you and me? What do you think he thinks about you and me? What do you think he feels about you and me? Have you considered that before? Now, again, we don't, have to, we don't have to guess about this because in John 3, 16, and I know you know this really well because you've heard it before, but maybe it's, it's a little bit, um, it's, it's a little bit, uh, I don't know, maybe it's become white noise to you. So I, I'm going to quote this from the message translation, which I don't often do because I have some issues about the way it's rendered. But anyway, um, here, here's what the, Eugene Peterson, the writer of the message, here's how he, he renders John 3, 16. Uh, and I think we have it on the screen here, if you want to look at it. This is how much God loved the world, you and me. He gave his son, his one and only son. 
And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed, but by believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. When God looks at you and me, this is what he thinks and this is what he feels. He thinks, you're my creation and I made you and I love you. And the way he feels towards us is he wants to be actively involved in our lives, to bring us to a redeeming place where we have fulfillment and satisfaction in everything we could be. Now, here's the reason I want to start here. Because it's critical, Paul has told us all throughout Ephesians, that we learn, if we are saved by grace, that we learn to think and to feel like God thinks and feels. And so, uh, I want us to spend today making sure we understand that. So to review, the whole process of spiritual growth, what the, Paul calls renewal, is what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. And here's the definition, maybe on your screen, if you have bulletins, you can fill it in. Spiritual renewal which is a fancy word for growth, uh, occurs as I learn to process my thoughts and feelings as Jesus does in every aspect of my life. Spiritual renewal occurs as I learn to process my thoughts and my feelings as Jesus does in every aspect of life. When you look in the mirror, you may think, oh, gosh, you're an idiot. I can't believe you got that haircut and wore that shirt. And, oh, man, you're just going to show up at the table and everyone's going to look at you and they're going to be like, oh man, I can't believe this person's here. You may think that. Or you may be someone who showed up here, you're super arrogant. You know, there's some people in here, Doug, uh, who just, when they wake up every day, they're like, you're the best. That's right. You are the gift to the world. Outside of Jesus, there's you. Um, So just pray for me and my arrogance, right? But, you know, however you showed up here today, here's the reality. Continuing to think, oh, I'm just a terrible person and no one likes me, is an incorrect view of how Jesus sees you. When he sees you, he thinks and he feels about you in very positive ways. And so the process of, become, of growing as a disciple is learning to step in and to think and to feel the same way Jesus does about everything, about all aspects of life. Again, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what God thinks about sexuality. And last week, we looked at what God thinks and feels about alcohol. And today, we're going to look at what God thinks and feels about relationships. And we're going to do this the same way we've done it over the past few weeks. First, we're going to look at what the calloused idea is. What's the wrong way of thinking about some things? The, the way we've built a wall up, the way we've kind of uh, built a, a fence to keep some things out. What's the wrong idea? Then we're going to look at the renewal idea. This is what the renewal idea is. And then we're going to look at some practical ways we can live that out. So, um, so let's just overview what I want to do. And by the way, I'm just going to tell you, because we've got a lot of stuff to get through, we're going to kind of be a, a little bit um, segmented in the way we do this. So I promise, I'm, we're going to work through a lot of text. I'm going to try to keep you entertained. I'm going to tell some jokes and some stories and try to keep you captivated. If you're someone who takes notes, may I encourage you, this would be a good time to take notes. If you're not someone that takes notes, may I encourage you to think about like doodling something on your paper or whatever you do, Right. Um, this would be a good thing to think through. So if you have bulletins, you can fill this in. Here's the overview right here. As we're thinking about the question, how does the practice uh, of renewal impact our relationships? Uh, I I want you to uh, think about it in these three ways. Number one, the main idea, or I'm sorry, the calloused idea is this. Satisfaction in life is found by practicing detached independence in relationships. Satisfaction in my life is found by practicing uh, detached independence in relationships. 
So what do I mean by detached uh, independence? Well, I thought about explaining it, or you could just watch this Snickers commercial, which is going around on TV. So take a look at the Snickers commercial. Just start fresh someplace. Someplace else. You know, no job, no family. Just walk away. That's my number one fantasy. Number one fantasy pick, Don. David Johnson. David Johnson. Good. David That's Johnson. good. <laughs> right? We all have that one friend, right? That one friend who's just like, man, if I, this is my dream. If I could just get away from everybody and be by myself, like no one ever talking to me ever, no cell reception, no one texts me, I don't have TV. If I can live in Siberia, if I could grow my beard out, and you're just like, whoa, right? Uh, that, that's the idea there. And it, what it's communicating is, what bothers me in life, which makes me unhappy, is all these other people around me. And so if I could just detach myself from all these relationships, then I'll ultimately be happy. Now, some of you in the room are introverts, and you're like, I don't know, Doug, that Snickers commercial kind of sold me, right? Like, I think that would be my ideal life. Like, no one bothers me and just, right? But even introverts will tell you they need, they love people. Introverts love people. They just need to recharge away from people. You know if you're an introvert because you're around people enough, you're like, I, I've had my fill and I just need to go alone. So you just need to like wrap in a comforter in your bedroom somewhere and just kind of, right? I'm married to an introvert. I get that. Extroverts like are like, man, I'm really tired of being around people. I need to be around more people. Like I just need to go. That's how I need to recharge, right? So I'm not talking about extroversion and introversion here. I'm just saying in general, there is a philosophy that says the, the way I'm ultimately going to find happiness is by being detached from things. This is, by the way, the most prominent thought in Buddhism. In life, you will really find happiness as you're detached from things. And this idea of independent detachment is embedded in our very political thought in the United States. Think about the declaration of independence, detachment, right? You, you've all done the preamble, like, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So right there in our political thought, Independence and happiness are associated. We will be happy when we are detached and independent from people. What started with England, we're going to detach from you, has now moved itself into our very individual expression of ourselves. No one gets to define who I am. I'm going to detach myself and I'm going to define myself and no one can bother me, right? So this is the calloused idea. And we all tend to think this or we all are exposed to this at different times. Our very art form of commercial video shows us this. But here's the renewal idea, the one I want us to think through. Satisfaction in this life is not found by practicing detached independence. It's found actually by practicing Christian submission in relationships. Happiness is actually found by practicing Christian submission in relationships. In verse 21 of chapter 5, Paul says this, be submitted to one another. And then in verse 22, he goes into all the examples of that. Really, 21, verse 21 could be the heading over all of these relationships. Paul is saying, if you're really going to imitate God and you're really going to practice love, every Christian, every Christian is going to have to practice submission. Now, why would he say that? Here's why he would say that. Because anytime you enter into a relationship with anyone else, you get to practice submission. 
Submission is a necessary component of being in a relationship with any other human being. And if you don't believe me, just try to go hang out with somebody on a Saturday night, right? When you're just by yourself, you guys think about it, your ideal Saturday night, you're like, you know what? I'm just going out and I'm going to do my own thing, right? I'm just, I'm going to go to Universal. I'm going to City Walk. I'm just going to walk around. I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to try to find happiness. Um, When I thought about this, like what it was like to go out, what I used to like to do is I would, at the, at the time I had a walk man or I had a disc man, right? So I had the giant disc man I would like put in my back pocket, but I had like baggy jeans, so it was a little, right? You guys know what disc men are? I'm from the Stone Age. Uh, we didn't have digital stuff when I was growing up, right? So I'd have a disc man and my yellow earbuds that actually had the little thing on top. So it was like, right? Just like that. And I would do that. I'd get on my skateboard or my longboard and I would just pedal around campus at Baylor University. And I would just be like, this is the best. I'd be listening to like Death Cab for Cutie and just be like, oh, I'm so angsty right now. Oh, I'm alive. Right. Uh, And that was me. And I just, I love that about my Saturday nights or my Friday nights. I could just go do whatever I want. I could pedal wherever I wanted. No, like the road wasn't a hindrance. No human being was a hindrance. Well, the people in the crosswalks were, but I kind of tried to avoid them. Um, Unless it was a professor I didn't like, I didn't avoid them so much. Anyway, so... (laughs) You know who you are if you're listening to this podcast. Anyway, so uh, that was me. And anybody who's ever been independent on a Friday night knows this, or a Saturday night, you know this. Where does it get complicated? The second you go, hey, bro, what are you doing Saturday night? You want to hang out? And now everything is off. The whole order is off, right? As soon as you invite another person to come hang out with you on a Saturday night, this is what happens. You're like, hey, you want to hang out Saturday night? Yeah. You want to go to Universal City Walk? Uh, do we really want to go to Universal City Walk? Yes, we really want to go to Universal City Walk. I would not have advanced it if I didn't want to go to City Walk. Uh, I don't know about this. What if we went to the Dollar Theater in Altamont Springs instead? And now you're doing the relational calculus. You're like, oh man, I want to hang out with this person. But I really don't want to go to the Dollar Theater. Like, I want to go to Universal. Is there a way I can negotiate and get this person over to my side? Right? If you've ever experienced this with a friend, if you try to coordinate where you're going to go, it becomes a little bit of a hassle. And those of us who are not really inclined to have relationships, the minute someone's like, there's a little bit of pushback on the destination where we're hanging out, you're just like, I'm out. Right? You're that guy in the exchange who's like, I don't care where you guys go. I'm going here. Why? Because I don't want to practice submission in this relationship. All relationships require a practice of submission. All of them. just, Just so you guys know, when you start dating, if you haven't started dating yet, you get to practice submission on hyperdrive, on hyperspeed, right? Because then you get into that whole thing that we all know about, and I'm not gonna spend too much time on it, but it's like, hey, we're going out Friday night. Cool, where do you wanna go? I don't care, where do you wanna go? I don't care, where do you wanna go? I don't care, where do you wanna go? I don't care. And it's like the Williams sisters at Wimbledon, Back and forth, you're just like, oh my gosh, somebody just win this match. What's going to happen? Uh, and the only way you move forward is if you begin to practice Christian submission. And you guys know this. As soon as you get married and you have kids, now you have three people. And now your, your whole plan on a Saturday night is ruled by everybody else. And you've got to, as a husband, as a dad, as a mom, whatever, wife, you've got to practice submission. There are no relationships, Paul says, without practicing Christian submission. So that means... If we're going to be spiritually mature people, and if we're going to have relationships, then we've got to be really skilled, we've got to become really skilled at practicing and applying Christian submission. And Paul gives us three categories for practicing Christian submission here, and here's what they are. It's husbands and wives, it's parents and children, and it's bosses and employees. So we're going to talk about those three relationships 
and then we're going to wrap up. You guys still with me? Okay, cool. All right, let's talk about the first one, husbands and wives. What does it look like for renewal to take place in a husband and wife relationship? And I'm getting hot in here, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm doing this thing right here, right? Sorry. Yep. Easy, easy. I'm a human being, thank you. Okay, I don't appreciate being catcalled. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I don't appreciate it, but still, I'm not going to be that mean to you. Okay. All right. By the way, I think that was a dude. There's a whole other conversation we have about that anyway. So, all right, here we go. Uh, husbands and wives. And listen to this. Uh, I'll say a whole lot more about husbands and wives later. In February, you guys know we're going to have a love, sex, dating, singleness, marriage kind of thing that's going to go on the whole month of February. So if you have friends who are like, I don't know if I want to go to church, maybe you can learn to practice submission and relational capital and get them to come to church with you on a Tuesday night in February where we'll talk about this ad finitum. Or you can go listen to our podcast where we have tons of content on husbands, wives, and all this stuff. But I'll just say a few things just because I want to keep in the flow of this text. And so here's the thing. Here's how husbands practice submission. Here's how wives practice submission in marriage. Husbands submit by giving their lives and their lifestyles. Husbands submit by giving their lives and their lifestyles. That's what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives. Be ready to lay down your life for them, just like Christ laid down his life for the church. Now, we can kind of think about this in rose-colored terms. We're like, oh, yeah, I'm like the secret service of my wife. And so if someone, you know, fires a bullet at her, I'm going to, like, jump in the way, slow motion. Right? And you're taking the bullet, and then there's the moment where she comes over to you. She's like, thank you for taking that bullet. I did it for you, honey, right, as you die, and then the credits roll and whatever, all that stuff. Maybe I'm really morbid in the way I think about things. You guys, this is not a morbid crowd. You're like, whoa, that's extreme. If, If someone were shooting my wife, I'd be like... I didn't know her that long, and I, yeah, I'd be gone. <laughs> I'm telling you, some of you guys are like, y'all just had like this real, maybe, maybe when you go, like, you cannot practice detached independence. No. <laughs> anyway, so listen, listen, I think, I think we tend to think, right, like, oh, I'll just give up my life for my wife. But I think what Paul is talking about here is more something like um, giving up your lifestyle. So you can think about this. Maybe one day you're married and maybe you're in here and you're, you're a husband, you're going to be a husband, right? You get up in the morning, right? It's nine o'clock on a Saturday in the fall in Florida. That means one thing, game day, right? College game day. Probably next year they'll be at, in Orlando twice because UCF still will not have lost and they'll just be obligated to come twice a year to watch the Knights. Go nice, jaw drawn. Uh, and so you're like, hey, it's game day, honey. I want to watch game day. And she's like, it's Christmas, Hallmark movies. And you're like, Ugh, okay, I got to practice submission here. Okay, we, what if we watch game day, but we picture in picture, right? We do the picture in picture thing, the Hallmark thing, right? And you give that to her and she's like, what about if we watch the Hallmark movie and we picture in picture game day? And you're like, ugh. Are there any Pinterest projects you need me to do so I can go to the garage and build them and open up the iPad and watch game day in there, right? You're trying to think through these things, right? And all of these conversations you're having as a husband are conversations surrounding submission. Submission, men who are going to be husbands, means sometimes sacrificing your lifestyle so that the overall lifestyle of your family can be optimal, right? And sometimes that means I can't watch this show now, or I can't watch this show later, or I can't do what I'm normally accustomed to doing because the family needs are the most. And so Paul's just saying, hey, we practice submission all the time in a family unit where husbands lay down their lives for their wives and for their family. 
And so I'm just trying to point out that this is the main way you're going to do it as a husband. Now, Paul says on the flip side of that, because remember, you guys are in kind of a team here. Wives are going to primarily express and practice submission uh, by demonstrating fellowship to a husband's leadership. Practicing, uh, demonstrating fellowship to a husband's leadership. Now, why would Paul say this? Paul starts this off. Wives, submit to your husbands. And everybody who's like a third wave feminist is like, oh my gosh, that just sounds like, what is going on here, right? Was Paul like on drugs? Like, what's he talking about? But no, think about this. Paul is having to utter this command out there, which means there were women hearing it and that was challenging them. Okay, it wasn't, he, he wasn't writing like, ladies, you know how we just love practicing submission, right? He's not appealing to them in kind of an agreeable way. He's offering this very terse command into that statement. So probably what's going on here is, is uh, this situation. There's a lot of independent women um, who maybe have their own businesses. At that time period, they got the Etsy store, whatever the equivalent of the Etsy store is. They're running their little business. Uh, you know, they're remodeling homes, they're, uh, you know, heads of banks, whatever women are doing at this time period, but they're, they're individual women. They're living the life of detached independence. And so on a Saturday night, they're just like, I'm calling my girlfriends who want to go with me to city walk and we're going right. And that's just how they roll. It's what they do. They're in their girl tribe, right? They're doing the whole thing where they're like, we're going to the club and I'm not talking to boys. I'm just dancing. Nope. No boys. Guys come around. Mm, I'm just dancing. Stay away. Right. That's like, that's their thing. And then they meet a guy in a life group and they're like, Ooh, you're kind of cute. And he's like, you're kind of cute. And then they start dating and they start practicing submission a little bit. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Right. And after a while, these are agreeable and they move to the engagement phase, which is basically like, yes, honey, whatever you want. Right. What does it cost? Here's my wallet. Right. That's the engagement phase. And then when you're done with all that, they get married. And these women are like, I used to be a CEO of a company. And now I'm like hanging out with my husband here. And he has these ideas about where we should go. And mm -mm, I'm not used to that. And Paul is telling these women, hey, remember, you guys have now formed this new company. Uh, it's called Team Your Family. And so because y'all are a team, you got to recognize that there needs to be some role definition that goes on here. And the hardest uh, thing that's going to happen for a lot of these women who are all strong and intelligent leaders is learning to kind of let the husband lead and not emasculate them all the time with their like strong leadership abilities. Because here's the thing, uh, and, and I, I bring this from sociological data and all this stuff. Women, especially great leader, strong, intelligent, smart women, um, if they're not careful, they will verbally emasculate their husbands. And husbands just like will not want to do anything. Like the first time the husband's like, you know what I think we should do for vacation this year? We should go to Disney World, right? Like he's met with all his guy friends at the pub. It's like, what I think I'm going to tell my wife is we should go to Disney World, right? Yeah, see? So I'm going to have a PowerPoint presentation. And I'm going to like deliver it and show the pros and con list. And we're ready. Like, can you guys pray for me? Because my wife's really smart. And I just want to make sure I deliver this like a man. And they're like, yeah, and they lay hands on him. They pray for him. He shows up. He's like, hey, honey, I know where we should go this year. Disney World, right? And he like drops it, shows the PowerPoint presentation, like lights go up and he's like, so what did you think? And she's like, ha, 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 that's a terrible idea. Pulls out the samurai sword, right? Now that guy is like, mm, mm, right? Awkwardly walking away. And then the next year at vacation, he's like, she's like, so where do you think we should go? You want to go to Disney World again? And he's like, mm, right? Just walks away. Every time he has an idea, he brings it to his wife. He's like, I really feel like God is leading us to go on this mission trip. And she's like, ha, ha, ha. And he's like, mm, right? So here's what this can do, right? If women don't learn to kind of, whoa, pull back a little bit, when the, when the husband's trying to lead here, there's this danger of women emasculating their husbands. He has that in mind going on here. 
Now, this might not be anybody in this room today, right? But I think this might be some of us in this room today, right? Because, and we have some laughter right here, which is just sociological approval of this idea. Um, Because as I look in this room, I see a lot of really confident, smart, beautiful, intelligent, go-getter women. And here's the thing. When you get married, you are moving. You are electing from being an independent individual thinker to being part of a team, And Paul is saying, think about this uh, like American football. Just think about it like American football. Uh, Husband's quarterback, you're the wide receiver. Those are the roles. Let him say hike, okay? You run your route. He's going to pitch you the ball. When you catch it, guess what? You both score a touchdown, okay? Both of you score a touchdown. But you've got to have these defined roles, And so women, just be mindful of the fact that when your husband tries to lead, you want to encourage that. You want to practice that um, uh, submission there in that part. And his job is to make sure he lays down his life for you. So husband's laying down life. Wife is practicing submission by yielding and letting her husband lead. And when that happens, somehow in the mystery of God, that all tends to work together for optimal efficiency in the marriage. Now, I have a million more things I could say on that. But again, I'll talk about that in February, or you can listen to the podcast for more on that issue. Okay. Let's look at the next uh, area of relationships. Children and parents. Children and parents. Paul basically says, you know, parents don't frustrate your children, and children you need to obey or honor your parents. That's kind of the summary of that whole statement there that he gets to. Now, before we talk about this and what this looks like, because there are very particular parent-child needs in this room here, my suspicion is most of you don't have kids, Most of you still feel like children of your parents, even though you may be in your mid-20s, your late-20s, or whatever. And so um, one thing I found to be tremendously helpful is that you guys understand how parenting should function in the ideal. And this, I think, will help you guys see how maybe your parents are going through a weird transition phase right now, okay, just to kind of give you some insight on this. So here is Doug's philosophy of parenting 101. This is not in the Bible. It's just my philosophy, but I I think this will help you. And here it is. When a child is from zero to 10, here's the role that the parent plays. Parents are dictators. When you have a kid in your home who's zero to 10, which all my kids are there, parents are dictators. And you know this if you've ever tried to get your child dressed. Because even if they know how to put on their clothes, they're just like, what are these garments right here? I don't know what I'm doing. And I just put your underwear on. Like, I don't know how to put my underwear on. Oh, my goodness, you put your underwear on like thousands of times. You have to dictate everything. You've got to dictate what they eat or they won't eat. You've got to dictate what they wear or they won't wear it. You've got to dictate for them to get in the car. You've got to dictate for them to put on their seatbelt. You've got to dictate every aspect of their lives. That's why when you see parents who are parents of children from zero to 10, they're always tired. Why? Because they're thinking for two people or three people at that time. And they're like, I have no more energy. Like I, I gave them food. I got them dressed. I got them in the car. We just got to church. I, I don't even, I don't even know. Seriously, you should be here on Sunday at the 10 o'clock hour and just watch parents come from the like kids parking lot. Like, they're, they're literally, that's why they have strollers, because you just can't even anymore. Like, you have this nine-year-old who can fully walk. They're half-dressed, and the parents are just like, I need coffee. I, need, I just can't even, right? You're dictating everything about your child's life at that point. The child has no brain of their own. They don't know what to do. You've got to dictate everything for them, right? But once a kid hits about 10, this thing called the will turns on. Sorry, I just made a tennis ball thing. That's weird. That's the only sound effect I have. Sorry. This thing just turns on in them, and they start going, no, I don't want that. I want this. And now you have to start playing a different role as a parent. You're no longer a dictator. You're an influencer, right? You're like, okay, 
I don't have to dictate this for you, but I can strongly influence where you go and what you do. And this is never more present than when the kid hits about 16 and they can drive now. Okay? So age 10 to 18, you're an influencer. That's the whole influencing years. It's middle school, it's high school, it's all that stuff. You know, there's girl drama where it's like, oh, I'm so ugly today, I don't want to wear this dress, and you don't even understand me. And, uh, I'm going to listen to Foo Fighter. That's what Pastor Doug said. Here we go, I'm angsty, right? So uh, you're an influencer, and you know this because when your kids have those one friends that you don't like, you're like, should you be spending all that time with him? Should you be spending all that time with her? Where are you going? Who's going to be there? Are you going to call me when you get there? Are you going to text me? Right? You're having to influence and help them know where to go, but you can't dictate things anymore. And you guys know this. If your parents still tried to be dictators when you were 16, and they're like, if you go to that party, I'm going to spank you. And you're like, really? That's your play? Like, I'm 16. I'm not a grown man, but I'm, I'm almost a grown man, and I don't think this is going to play much longer. Any of you have ever said at 18, I got to get out of this house? It might be because you had a parent who never switched from dictator to influencer, and you're like, I got to get, get away from that person. Maybe if I get away, they'll kind of grow up, right? So you just got to understand, you're an influencer, zero to 18. But here's the hardest switch for parents. At age 18, your parents become consultants. They're no longer dictating to you, and they're no longer influencing you. They're consulting with you, which means if your parents have wisdom, they're going to give it to you thinking this is something you should do. They're going to be like, listen, don't eat food after 8 p.m. and try to get in bed by 10. Right? They're just going to give it to you. And you're going to look at them and you're going to go, hey, thank you for this report. We're going to take this under advisement and meet with my board later on. We're going to take this under advisement. Uh, appreciate your services. This terminates our contract. Thank you. Right? And you're done. And at 11 o'clock, you're Instagramming. You're like, man, I'm eating food and staying up late. This is great. Hashtag no parents. Right? And you're doing that. And they're on you on Instagram because they're one of your secret followers. And they're just like, I gave them the report. I showed them the bar graphs. Why are they still up? I don't understand these things. Right? Parents struggle sometimes because they don't recognize their consultants. All the advice they give you at 18, you have to take it under advisement and choose to either accept it or reject it. And your parents are no longer dictators. That's the hardest thing, honestly. For most of you guys, your parents are just new to this area. It's the hardest thing in the world for them to realize that you guys are actually kind of peers now. And the advice they give you may be wisdom, but you can choose to reject their wisdom. And it's really hard for them. Well, I tell you these three things because I want you to have that perspective. Paul has this understanding or something like this understanding in mind when he gives the advice for uh, parents to not frustrate their children and for children to obey their parents. And I think from my sense is for many of us in this room, we're trying to wrestle with what does it look like for Jesus to renew my relationship with my parents now that I'm a grown adult? Right? I may be 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. I may be graduated from college and have my own big boy, big girl job. But my parents still sometimes come in and try to mother me. They kind of smother me. They try to whatever the version of that is for dads, right? They kind of, and I don't know, like, I don't know what I should do. And never is this more uh, pressing than maybe when you start dating somebody your parents don't want you to date especially if maybe you're from a small town in the southeast where everybody is mostly one racial profile, right? And you start dating somebody who 
isn't that racial profile, right? Or you know friends who have that? Like you grew up in an all-white town in the middle of Tennessee, and you moved to the big city of Orlando. They got moving water, right? And uh, they got old Disney World there. People go to Disney World every day. Isn't that fancy, Mom? Right? You go in, and you do all this thing, right? And you start dating that one girl who maybe isn't just white. Maybe she's Puerto Rican. You know, maybe she's from the Caribbean islands. You know, whatever. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter that they're Christian. Like, you bring her home for the first time, and you're like, they're like, what are you doing here with this non-white girl? I'm like, oh, she's a Christian. She loves Jesus. But, but she's not white. Like, we always had this vision of you marrying a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl and giving us blonde-haired, blue-eyed grandbabies. Like, what? Like they're just processing. We gave you the report on who to marry, and you're like, whoa, right? So I think most of us, when we're in that situation, we're going, how do I relate to my parents because the Bible says you should obey your parents, right? And I don't, I don't know what obeying looks like. How does God renew my obeying process with my parents? And here's the two things that Paul says. Number one, children can practice submission by obeying their parents during the home years and respecting their parents after the home years. Children can practice submission by obeying their parents during the home years and respecting their parents after the home years. So here's the thing. If you're over 18 and your parents aren't paying for college and your parents aren't paying for your phone bill or your car insurance or your car or some kind of, if you're not financially connected to your parents, if you've graduated and you have a job and you have your own apartment, you got to recognize something. You're an adult and the way that your parents should be relating to you is as a consultant, as someone who understands you're a young adult and they're an old adult, right? Uh, or aged adult or whatever you want to say. Don't tell them I said this, right? If your parents ask them, like, oh, you look so young. That's what I said, okay? Right? But they're trying to relate with you here. And so keep in mind, when they're giving you this wisdom and advice, you have a very particular, there's a particular way to go on this. If you're still in the home, you're 18, you're in college, they're still paying for stuff, this doesn't so much apply for you, although it kind of does, right? You're in the murky area. 18 to 22, you're in college. It's kind of murky. But listen, when you're in the home, it's obedience. If they say do this, you say yes, ma'am, yes, sir. If they say don't do this, you say yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Once you're an adult, when they say you better do this, you go, cool, I'm going to respect you. Thank you for giving me that wisdom. I appreciate that. I'm going to take that under advisement. And that is perfectly okay. Because you're no longer a child biblically. You're an adult. And so you can honor your parents, which is what the Ten Commandments says. Honor your father and mother. You can honor your father and mother without obeying your father and mother. Did y'all hear that? You can honor your father and mother without obeying your father and mother. Now keep this in mind. This is why this is true. Because of what Paul says to parents. He says, parents... Practice submission by not frustrating their kids in an undisciplined and ungodly manner. He says, don't frustrate your children. And the good thing about this is, parents, your kids are always going to be children to you. And so this doesn't ever change the way parents should treat their children. Don't frustrate them. So if they bring someone home who's maybe black-skinned and you wanted them to marry a white-skinned person, parents, don't frustrate your children by going, oh, wow. She's not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed like girl like we thought. Like, what? Don't, no, what you need to do is go, hmm, what would help my kid here? Okay, is, are they a believer? Great, awesome, come on in, let's welcome them in, okay? If it's hard for you as a parent to kind of do that, and I know none of your parents, but the way that I think God would talk to your parents is he would say, listen, whoa, hold on, hold on. 
don't frustrate your, your, your kids here. Your job as a parent is to make sure that your kids are following Jesus and giving them wisdom. And now they're adults, they're going to take it and do what they want to do because they have their own will. Let me, let me put this a little bit closer to home, and I think you guys can scale up. I was thinking about this in particular just recently. My daughter's in homeschool. We homeschool our kids because we're Christians, right? Um, uh, and, uh, and I meant that as kind of a joke, right? Um, descriptive, sociologically descriptively. How about that? Uh, and so our daughter was at the table the other day, and here's what happened. Again, you know, our daughter is six right now, and so she woke up. She's like, Daddy, we cook me eggs. I'm like, yes, so I make her eggs. I make great eggs, y'all. My eggs game is solid, right? So I do the scrambled eggs with the butter. It's a great situation. I put it on the plastic plate for her because that's what she likes. I give her the adult fork because that's what she wants. Everything, like she wants it, put it on the table. Get everything ready for her. Milk cup is there, ready to go, whole situation. She comes in, she sits down, she looks at it. She's like, um... Daddy, these eggs have some brown on them where you cooked them too long. I just, I can't eat this. And I was like, what are you doing? These are eggs. Like, I cooked them 99% of the way there. She's like, they're not 100% of the way there. Slid them off. And so we go back and forth for a while. And finally, I'm just like, fine. And I give them to her brother. And, you know, her brother is, you know, three. And he's just like a meathead. He's like, cool, eggs. <laughs> right? He's happy. And I'm like, ah, oh, the good son right here. Thank you, my boy. You know, the, you know, the future of our family. Anyway, um, so no, I didn't say that. So I'm, but I'm, as a parent, I'm just like, oh my goodness, right? You have these moments. My daughter's a leader. Again, my daughter's a leader. She's smart. She's going to probably be president one day. I get this. She's like, no, I will not accept that. Let's negotiate. And I, I love those skills, but I really want her to eat those eggs. And right. So we're having that whole battle. Well, she just decides she's not going to eat. And I'm like, fine. And so the way that we try to communicate love in our family is we just excommunicate one another from conversation. She's like, fine. I'm like, fine. She's like, fine. I'm like, fine. She's like, fine. I'm like, fine. And so, right? So now she hasn't eaten and it's school time. And my wife comes in and is like, okay, Grace, let's sit down. So she sits down. She starts to eat. Grace sits down, right? Well, you're not going to believe this, but my daughter couldn't concentrate on her schoolwork. Because she's hungry, because she wouldn't eat the eggs that I made her, because they had one speck of brown on them. And so now, Natalie's like, hey, hold your pencil right. Like, hey, hey, what are you doing? Hey, come on, this is math. You're good at it. And she's just like, oh, like falling over. She can't concentrate or whatever. Now, I have an option at that point, right? My daughter needs food in order to be able to focus so she can get her work done. She is not being obedient, and she is doubly not being obedient. She's being doubly disobedient, doubly disobedient, Right? Mm, not having this. Oh, here's option A. I could walk in and be like, you better do this now and use the low voice, right? Like I'm introducing a trailer. Grace Hankins was hungry while doing breakfast, right? Right? Something like that. I could do that. And I could just like try to demand that she does this. And you know what that would do? It would frustrate her, right? Or I could just be an adult and go, okay, look, fine. You need food. What do you want? I want a cheese stick. Here's a cheese stick. Is that good? And I want an apple. Shh, here's an apple, right? What else? I want a glass of milk. Here's a glass of milk. And then when she's like, yep, I'm full, I send her over to do her work. And you know what? That's what we did. And guess what happened? She got her work done. Now, what would happen if I tried to frustrate her more and more? No, you'll do this, and you're going to bow to my demands. You're going to, I would be a parent not practicing submission in a relationship. Paul says, don't do that. Children, obey your parents, sure. But parents, don't frustrate your kids. 
So for all of you who are thinking about having kids one day, just let that sink in. There are applications all throughout life. Okay, let me get to the third one. Employees and employers. Employees and employers. Employees practice submission by working for and obeying their supervisors in order to please God and not their boss. They work for and obey their supervisors in order to please God and not their boss. And just to give you the opposite, because there's a comparison here, employers know they are employees of Jesus, so they strive to lead their employees as Jesus leads them. So here's the thing. Maybe you're uh, an employee of an employer. Maybe your employer is a Christian. Maybe your employer is not a Christian. And you may show up to work one day, especially if they're not Christians, and you see your boss just does things just a little bit oddly. You know they're not tethered by the gospel. It doesn't inform the way they think about and lead and do these other things. Maybe you like your boss. Maybe you don't like your boss. But at some point in your employment career, my suspicion is that you will have a moment where you just kind of don't get along with your boss. And in your mind, you think, this would be so much better if I were a boss, or it would be so much better if I was at a different job. And you can't go to another job, and you can't be boss. And so what do you do? How do I practice Christian submission as a part of the renewal process? What would Jesus think and feel if he were living in my skin with this jerk of a boss that I have right now? Right? And what Paul says is, recognize in that moment, you don't work for that boss, ultimately. You work for God. Everything you do is measured at the standard of excellence that God sets. So you don't work for the standard of excellence of this company or this boss, because that may be just ludicrous. You work for a standard of excellence that God sets for you, and you work as unto the Lord. And so I had, I had this friend uh, one time who was in one of these situations. He had a really bad boss, and he was a corporate guy. So he's making a lot of money. There's a lot of deals on the table, and so how he navigated the situation was quite important. And he had a bad boss, and he would come and talk to me about his bad boss, and he, he kept persevering and pushing through, and I thought this was really interesting. And I said, um, you know, how do you do this? Like, how do you keep working even though you've told me your boss is just kind of an, a jerk about things? And he said, you know what? I found I can work for any jerk of a boss because I ultimately don't work for that boss. I work for Jesus. And the question that I've learned to ask is not what do I owe my boss. I've learned to ask what do I owe Jesus with respect to my boss? And so Jesus tells me every time, you work really hard, you try to get your work done on time, you try to be the best employee you can be, regardless of whether your boss evaluates that properly or understands that or gets that. Because as an employee, what you need to ultimately be concerned with is pleasing your master. And that's why Paul frames this section in terms of master and slaves. You've got you to keep in mind when Paul's talking about this, he's thinking about the, um, the household business at this time period in the first century where there would be this whole family, a, a dad and a mom. Um, you guys have seen Black Panther, right? The documentary about Wakanda, right? And, uh, okay, right. So, like, there's Black Panther's king, but imagine he gets married to the one, you know, like, you know, spear spy lady, right? Uh, and they get married and they have kids. Like, you can just see, like, the family is also a business and they have all the, like, guards and people who are all part of their kind of business, but it's kind of family, but it's kind of friends. It's a really unclear organizational framework there in Wakanda. You guys get that? Well, this is probably the most common situation of what's going on here is like this family in Ephesus, husband and wife would have employed these maidservants and these manservants and all these other people, and they would have kids, and they all went to church, and they all got saved. 
And when they're at church, like they're all kind of equal, right? They're in worship services, they're all equal, but then they go home and they're in this household and they're like, oh wait, how do we functionally get through all of this? And so Paul is saying, hey, uh, husbands and wives, remember when you're at home, kind of in the home company, just operate this way. And parents with your kids, be sure to operate this way. But now you've got all these secondary layer of all these employees, what they would have called servants, masters and servants. And really the best parallel here is employer and employee. He's saying, hey, um, he's assuming they're all, all Christians. And so here's how you operate within this. Like servants, don't work for your master, work into the Lord, but be sure to honor your master. And pretty soon you had all these people who were coming out and they're like, listen, I'm still employed by somebody, but he's not a Christian. Does this change? So partly what Paul's writing to is to address this. He's saying, no, no, it doesn't change. Don't worry about who your master is. If you work for a pagan boss, work unto the Lord. That's what you should do. Now let's flip that over. What if you're a supervisor and you've got a ton of direct reports that report to you? You're the master in the situation. How does Christian renewal hit this? Well, here's what Paul says. Paul says, employers know that they're employees of Jesus, so they strive to lead their employees as Jesus leads them. In other words, you go, I need to look directly at how Jesus leads me. I need to look to Jesus' leadership style, and I'm going to let that influence how I treat my employees. And in general, if I could just give you maybe a clear, like a a simple vision of what this could be, I, I think the best way to think about being an employer who's a Christian who has direct reports and how to treat them, I think the best parallel for me is when I think about the idea of hazing uh, in high school and college. Did anybody, I mean, sorry, anybody like see or experience or you know of somebody who like got hazed in college or high school, things like that? I mean, in sports or in fraternity sorority scene, okay, this. So let me explain hazing for you if you don't get this, right? So when I was a freshman in high school, a couple of my friends, the seniors in our high school class, like one night worked because they were friends with them and their parents. They kind of worked where they kidnapped all these kidnapped all these guys and they took them to our high school football American football stadium and they made them strip down naked and they tied them to the goalpost and then they threw water balloons at them and then left them there for like an hour to like just squirm or whatever. This is before social media, right? So if social media today, there would probably be pictures plus arrests made, right? Anyway, but this was kind of the thing. And so I remember my friends were telling me about this the next week in school. They were like, I can't believe the seniors did this to me. It was so embarrassing, whatever. And I was like, yeah, this is really a terrible thing that's happened. Like, how have there no been, been no assault charges filed? Like, like, what's going on here? I'm thinking about the litigious nature of this. Anyway, and I thought what was next, what happened next was really interesting. These friends were like, I can't wait till I'm a senior. I'm going to get the freshman even worse. And I was like, excuse me? They're like, yeah, I'm already dreaming now about how I'm going to haze the freshman. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. This is just, you should just know this. In any conversation, if you say something like that, just know I'm going to talk like this. I was like, okay, wait. You didn't like being hazed like this. No. So your solution to this is to be worse about this to someone else. They're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. I don't see if you see, but if uh, if this all happens, this is only going to end up poorly for everybody in the world, right? And Jesus is kind of thinking about this same thing going on here where because bosses are never checked, they have this tendency to just treat their employees poorly. Because if if you don't know this, if you've never worked in corporate world or in the business world, to get to be a boss in an organization is really tough. Right? To be a supervisor of a team, you've got to start at the bottom of the corporate ladder. You've got to work just outrageous hours. And then maybe, just maybe, you get a promotion or two and you get to be put into a point 
where someone recognizes you and now you have direct reports. And typically, working overtime requires doing grunt labor, like you've got to go get coffees and you've got to make copies and you've got to do this report that you turn into your boss and then your boss takes credit for it and he tells you later, this is just how it works. And so you're asking yourself, how many reports do I have to ghostwrite for my boss to get him where he needs to go before I can be someone who's there? And you just go through a lot of really crummy stuff in the corporate world. And then you become a boss one day and now you have direct reports. And it's just like my friends, you can go, hmm, I'll do the same thing to my employees that my boss did to me, and then maybe we'll just wink, wink, continue to play this corporate game until maybe I'm uh, somewhere where I can retire, right? And Jesus says, that's ludicrous. No, 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 no. Remember, your boss is not the earthly boss that you had who put you through hell in the corporate life. Your boss is Jesus. And so you look to Jesus in the way he leads. And if you've worked your rear end off to get to that point and now you have some direct reports you don't turn around and haze them like you were hazed no you turn around and you become the best boss that they could ever have you treat them with respect you treat them with dignity and you make it such that they want to continue to work for you and to work for this organization treat them with love and respect because that's what jesus did i have worked for bad bosses in my life And I thought about this as I was just thinking about my own uh, kind of, you know, employment philosophy. And, you know, I've got, we've got six or seven people on our team. We've got seven people on our team. I know who I have on my team. I'm not just like, oh, we have four people, right? Uh, Right? So I know that I went through a few difficult seasons to kind of be where I am today just in terms of my career. And so I wrote this down. I went through difficult things to get here. I want to make it easier for people on my team to be in a position where their effort leads to earning. And I think that's what Jesus would say uh, if he were an employer in your shoes, in your situation, uh, who had direct reports. I went through so much difficult stuff to get to where I am. So I want to actually not make it more difficult for you. I want to make it easier for you to have a good work experience so that you can thrive in your career wherever God takes you. Because again, at the end of the day, if you've got employees, it's not about you. Those employees might be your boss one day. They might be better than you. They might not, but none of that matters. What matters is that Jesus is pleased that you're a good employer who lets the gospel motivate and dictate everything you do as you treat them well and as you honor them as human beings made in the image of God. Apart from any evangelistic things, that you're just a good human being to those people. Here's how I want us to respond today. We've talked about three things, and again, You've got husbands and wives, you've got parents and kids, you've got employers and employees. Here's the question I want to give to you guys, and I want you all to take 60 seconds just to consider it, and then Jason and the banner come up on stage and sing a song. Just, you know, maybe you want to close your eyes or just get to a point. I think we're going to dim the lights in the room. So here's a question I want to give you guys just to think about. Where is God speaking to you in the need to improve an area or in an area of relationships? Where is God speaking to you right now in the need to improve in an area of relationship? Is it in a relationship with your mom and dad? Is it in a relationship to a boss or an employee? Is it to someone you're dating or someone you're really close friends with? Is it to a spouse if you're married? In what area of your relationships is God speaking to you right now? And what would it look like for you to begin to practice Christian submission to them in this relationship? Take about 60 seconds to think about that. 
And at the end of it, Jason and the band are going to lead us in one last song.